0: IndieCast is presented by Uproxx's Indie Mixtape Hello everyone and welcome to IndieCast On the show we talk about the biggest indie news of the week We review albums and we hash out trends In this episode we talk about the new Sufjan Stevens album U2 at the Sphere and the shocking popularity of Duster my name is Stephen Hayden, and I'm joined by my friend and co host. He didn't see the 1975 this week because you guys are sick of hearing us talk about the 1975. Ian Cohen. Ian, how are you? Yeah, I, I, I
1: don't want to kind of disappoint people by saying that, yeah, I skipped the 1975 concert because, I don't know, I feel like Matty Healy's on some camp crusty shit. Like, he won't be saying or doing anything on stage. Like, maybe he's going to, like, do some really cool stage banner because like they're apparently going high on hiatus for a while. But in reality, it's like my wife was out of town and like picture me a 43 year old dude talking to like my Swifty friends at work. Like, Hey, uh, you want to go see the 1975?
0: Uh, I don't think I'm ready for that kind of chaos in my life. Well, I just hope people appreciate how little we've talked about the 1975 lately because you know, our inboxes just get full Whenever we talk about something people aren't totally vibing on, of course, we had the sports cast controversy, mm-hmm. talked about that on the show. We actually did get a lot of emails after that from people defending sports cast, so I'm glad to see that. Uh, we have a letter in our mailbag this week, someone complaining about our subject matter. We'll get to that later. Uh, we could have been talking about the 1975 way more than we have lately. I think this was at the Hollywood Bowl, which would have been the show you would no, have No, they they I think, played at you... the Viejas Arena in San Diego.
1: Oh yeah, wow. Okay, no, so like that. I, well, that's right in my backyard. I really could have done it, but, you know, I saw I saw, well, I saw w- him last time around on this very same tour, um, and yeah, it just yeah, it just didn't feel right.
0: Well, there was that public apology that Maddie Healy made at the Hollywood Bowl show. I don't know if you did saw not. the video of that. I did. I did. It was this sort of like all-purpose apology (laughs) saying, you know, I know that my words and actions have hurt people. It didn't seem totally sincere. It kind of seemed like a uh, performance art piece. That sounds like a 1975 Uh, song. It's not totally
1: sincere. Exactly.
0: Exactly. It seemed like he was sort of lampooning the public apology phenomenon, which made me like him. I I thought it was a funny thing to do. Again, I'm a seesaw on this guy. Sometimes he annoys the hell out of me. Sometimes I think he's funny. I don't know where to stand on him. Is there anything else left to say? Do we want to delve deeper into the 1975, or do we want to give our listeners a little bit of relief here?
1: (sighs) No, I'm ready to talk about the deeper cuts from notes on a conditional form. Uh, I want to talk Shiny Collarbone. I want to talk about uh, Bagsy, Not in
0: Net, or whatever that song is. Only the songs from 15 on. Okay, well, let's put a pause on that. We'll do another special episode devoted to the 1975 in the future, and I'm sure people will be very excited for that. Uh, Let's get to this new Sufjan Stevens album. It's called Javelin. It's out today. Uh, Before we get into the album, should we talk about our fantasy draft. This was your number one pick. This was. Looking at Metacritic. Last I looked, it was at 84. And the Pitchfork review came out today, the day that we're recording, which is Thursday. 8.6. I don't know if that's good enough for you, buddy. This was your number one pick. (laughs) We're counting on Sufyan to pull a 90 or better on Metacritic. That's got to be like the first round pick type numbers. Your boy is looking like Justin Fields at the moment. He has a lot of oh. potential, but he's not delivering the 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 performance that you need. I, how are you feeling right now? Well,
1: I I know that like well first off we got to talk about like the metacritic redesign which is one of the worst I've ever seen. You know music's not even on the front page anymore. Yeah, I, it is it's awful. It, we're, this art form is cooked, man. It is like NHL in terms of like <laughs> games, movies and TV shows. So wait, man. so
0: wait, so it's movies, TV shows, games? That's the big 3 now? That's the big 3. Music's not TV in shows, there?
1: TV mo- shows, Yeah, no go 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 to the front page and but it's Completely unnavigable. I mean, games is first, movies next, TV shows. You gotta, like, click on some shit to get to music. It's fucking
0: great. Who cares about the Metacritic score of TV shows? No one talks about that. (laughs) This is like a music (laughs) thing, man. Come on, Metacritic.
1: It it really is. It is like the NHL in that, like, the people who are, like, into it are, like, super-duper invested. But I think the movie ones, people Well, people who care about movie scores care about, like, the Rotten Tomato ones. But... Yeah, I saw that uh, when Sufjan first went up. It was like largely like the print magazines, like Mojo and Uncut and the ones that like give four stars to everything. And you wonder like, man, this this thing still exists. But these scores are weighted. So I think an 8-6 hopefully like gets some sort of like force multiplier. So I, I think 90 is still within grasp. It's at 87 right now. Um, but you know, I, I, need this to be doing Paulo Banchero type numbers, not Markel Fultz, but Oh wow. I don't
0: feel, look at you. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, wow, the <laughs> NBA season, I guess is upon us. So we're dropping some, it is some remembering some NBA guys here. Yeah. I don't know. I think, I don't think you're going to get to 90, my friend. I think you're going to be probably high eighties with him, but you do have Taylor Swift. I can live with that. You have the Taylor Swift, 1989 mm-hmm. Taylor's version coming up, which might get a hundred. That could, I, I could or getting a ninety-eight, I could easily see that since uh, no one now wants to write anything negative about Taylor Swift. Are we gonna get like a Taylor Swift backlash at some point? I think this Travis Kelsey thing mm-hmm. could be the beginning of something. It is so uh, overbearing at this point. Like they're showing Taylor Swift like at NFL games all the time. She's getting more face time than uh, you know. Andy Reid, basically, at these games now. Uh, and you want to look at Andy Reid when you're watching a Chiefs game, by the way. Yeah, must that. That is peak male performance Exactly. Right there. Just you, you might
1: not like it, but this is what the ideal male body looks
0: it like. It is absolutely what I want to look like when I'm 68 or however old he is. Um, <laughs> I don't know. I, I just feel like the backlash is coming, but probably not for 1989. I think that is going to be a big one for you. But you're going to need it yeah. now to do high 90s to make up for Sufyan. So, I don't know, we'll see what happens. It, but I feel confident. I feel like Sufyan
1: was more of like a defensive pick because like I thought you were going to go with it. So, like that, that was like one where I'm like, yeah, that might Steve might be. Well, I I I still feel confident, but I think the funnier outcome would be if like I actually reviewed the album like and I didn't tell you or I was like reviewing one of your albums like Slow Pulp or something like that. And we have like a black socks like s like a point shaving
0: scandal. <laughs> that could have happened. Like what would have happened yeah. if uh <laughs> you know Jeremy Larson he he dings you with a DM. And he's like, Ian, I need you to step up and review Sufion for us. Would <laughs> you yeah. have been like, sorry, Jeremy, can't do it. Conflict of interest, got this fantasy draft yeah. on this podcast. I picked uh Sufjan is my number one pick. It would be unethical of me to review it for Pitchfork. Would, would you have taken that uh, stand or would you have taken the check written about it and uh, possibly thrown off uh, our little league here?
1: Yeah, the only conflict of interest there is between like, you know, my desire to, you know, have money and not. No, I would absolutely have done it. I don't <laughs> I don't know. I, 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 I think the uh, the integrity of our fantasy draft is a fluid thing, you know? <laughs> uh yeah. Oh, I, man. I I think the more real I think the more realistic one is if um is if I would have done like slow pulp or something, which also ran today. Uh that was a seven five. I okay. think that... I think that was a misstep for you in terms of your drafting strategy. Well, I think it was like picking uh, like DeAndre Hopkins. You know, It's like, okay, it's like one of the best albums of uh, indie rock, but there's a real low ceiling there.
0: Yeah, but I mean, it, last I looked, they were at 8.4, I think. So mm. that review won't... Dry, they're, they're, all I need them to do is like, like... The stat filler. They're like your kicker. I need them to do like Just, low 80s. <laughs> as long as they're above 80, I'm happy with the slow pulp pick. Because I've got my 290s. I've got... Mitski and I've got Olivia Rodrigo. They are the team leaders. As we speak, it's a 79. Oh, really? It went below 80. Yeah. Oh God. Yeah. Pitchfork is screwing both of us right now. Maybe, maybe yeah. Pitchfork editors are listening <laughs> to the show. They're trying to sandbag us both. I think everything is revolving around this fantasy draft. You know, the, the whole critical yeah. community. They're tuning in and they're sandbagging both of us with these scores. Um, I hope we get I hope we get letters backlashing the fantasy draft. So like it, oh, it just
1: kind of distracts people from like the sports cast, the Taylor cast. I think I, I think ultimately this is the uh, ocean to which all tributaries uh, lead. Well,
0: look, if you're going to complain about fantasy draft discourse, you're wasting your breath because that's not going <laughs> to stop anytime soon. Um, let's talk about this new Sufjan record. I want you to take the lead on this because I'm I'm going to hold back here a little bit uh on my feelings about this album and just sufyan stevens in general i know you are a much more uh educated sufyan person than me and you also like him a lot more than i do (laughs) talk about this album in terms of his career and like how do you feel that's that this record fits in with like his whole catalog
1: well, uh, I do have a Sufjan albums ranking list running soon for Up Rocks, and yeah, I absolutely need to get on finishing it. But um, I'm putting Javelin in like the three to five range. Um, I haven't quite figured that out yet. I don't think it'll top like Illinois or Carrion Lowell in the eyes of the masses. Like those are the ones that are listed as his uh, essential albums on Apple Music, which is what I listen. But you to, think this Spotify. could?
0: You think this could potentially be number three though?
1: Um. I think that the one thing it, it, it's like whatever the opposite of recency bias is, uh, like, I mean, most of his best work, be it, um, you know, even seven swans or Michigan or age of odds, uh, those came out in like really, really formative times in my life in the same. So, um, I, I don't think any new album can really compete with that, but the way I consider this one, um is that it's a bit of a rebound from The Ascension. Like, that was an album that I was really excited to revisit because I know that there are, like, a few people who think it's, like, one of his best albums or, like, one of the best albums of the decade. Like, John Perales from the uh, New York Times listed it as number one album in 2020. I did not remember that. But, God, that album, like, took fucking forever to listen to. Even more than, like, the, 19, the 80-minute 1975 album from uh, the same year. But, so this one you know, I think the first couple of singles post like post that as like this rebound. It's like back to the more minimalist, uh, you know, Sufjan. And I talk about this in the piece that for people who are maybe in their thirties, like Carrie and Lowell is like the Sufjan album. Whereas for people of our age demographic, it might be Illinois. And so I think for the generation that's currently, uh, you know, shaping the narrative, like Carrie and Lowell is like the Sufjan album, but this one, to me, um, what I like about it is that it's neither the maximalist nor the, you know, the super quiet Sufjan, like, you know, Seven Swans, for example. I, I I view it as, like, what if Illinois was as short as Carrie and Lowell, but, like, the songs were John Wayne Gacy and the one about the wasp, you know? It doesn't necessarily go one way or the other. It's a kind of a consolidation of his strength, rather than a return to form. If I had to like liken it to, uh, you know, Radiohead, I'd say it's like his in rainbows, mm. in the sense that like it doesn't do anything like super new, but it does so in like a way that's very condensed. It, it's like it's like kind of I don't want to say like easy listening because like there's some like really dark, devastating ass stuff on this album, but it's also not. Like the kind of album that you need to like portion out time for and say, okay, I'm going to listen to this. Because Carrie and Lowell, as great of an album as it is, you have to like really be ready. You can't just throw that stuff on. I tried listening to that at work on the way to work and I just could not make it. I'm like, I don't, I can't be in this type of mood. So I I think it just continues to reestablish him as like one of the more. Versatile and distinct artists of the twenty first century, and it's an
0: it's a it's not a masterpiece, but it's like a triumph. Okay, so my history with Sufjan Stevens is in the aughts. I found him completely insufferable. Like I didn't like Illinois at all. I tried Michigan Seven Swans. I just could not get into into them in the moment, and then over time my feeling about him has evolved into this sort of like, it's not for me, but I respect what he does. And it's funny because I actually kind of like The Ascension. And I think what drew me to that record versus a lot of his other albums is that he wasn't doing the folky orchestral thing that he's best known for that record is more electronic it has more of like a new order type influence to it and there's a little bit more aggressiveness going on in that record and i think i responded to that even though it is as you say a very long and kind of punishing (laughs) uh, listen um (laughs) but uh you know as you say he's reverted back to his more signature sound on this new record and you know i'm listening to it and you know i saw peter gabriel this week in concert And, uh, which was an amazing show, by the way, that might be my favorite concert of the year. I mean, he's, he's touring behind this album that he's been working on for 21 years and it's still not out yet, but he's put out literally 10 singles from it. Like he's, this is like a 12 song (laughs) album. Just like
1: very the 1975. It's like the out, the fucking endless album cycle. But
0: like, there's no release date yet and he's too tu- there is isn't no there's not but he's kind of put out the whole record already so i don't know what's going on you know he's touring behind it he played i think the entire record live if he didn't do the whole record he did almost all the songs and they sounded great live and i'm like this sounds like a great record but it's not out yet and there weren't that many people there like the arena was about half full and And it's because he's touring in support of a record that's not out yet. And he's been working on it for 21 years. Anyway, you know, after seeing Peter Gabriel, I was like, oh yeah, I see links to Sufjan Stevens here. You know, that Sufjan Stevens is part of that lineage of sort of like mainstream art rock where it's very conceptual, it's theatrical, it's grandiose. And I get behind that kind of thing. And I respect the craft of what he does. He's clearly gifted as a composer. And yet, he still leaves me cold. And this record, I would group into the leaving me cold part of what he does. I'm trying to put my finger on what exactly it is I'm not responding to. And I come back to this sort of theater kid slash youth pastor vibe that I've always gotten from him. That for me, I don't get the emotional devastation that you're talking about. There's something that keeps me at arm's length from what he's doing because of the theater kid aspect of it. And it just turns me off. And what I'm curious to hear from you is, you know, I've, you know, you've talked on the show about how a lot of the sort of mass appeal indie music that has come out in the last like 10, 15 years, like you, you feel alienated from it. It's not something that you'd naturally respond to. And we've talked about The National on the show and like how you haven't really gotten gotten into recent national records. What is it about Sufjan Stevens then that separates him from that pack? Because for me, he definitely falls into that. And I guess you could flip this around on me because I still care about The National, but I don't get into this. But like, what is it about this artist that you feel like exempts him from any misgivings you might have about middle-of-the-road indie music
1: well i think that the he is not he's not beating the theater kids slash youth pastor allegations i mean i think that is a that is like an undeniable part of you know his entire aura and i appreciated how like seven swans it, that's like I, I wrote about this like that's the kind of album that for the list that you typically make for like Bob Dylan or like artists that existed before 1995 like that's the kind of stuff that you do like way deep into your career whereas Sufyan did that like to follow up Michigan which was his breakthrough now I think it's that we we, we talk on this podcast a lot about like shittiness like this thing that like rankles people. And I think that Sufjan does always have that, you know, theater. I'm thinking more like early 2000s theater kid, not like theater kid nowadays where like the theater kids are like the popular people and there's like really nothing. There's there's like no dissonance to that. But um, I feel like at least to compare it to the national, which I think is fair, they've had pretty similar trajectories. When I hear a national album nowadays, I hear like the national kind of playing a role Or, like, just the national doing national songs or, like, what have you. Whereas, like, with Sufjan, um, you know, I I read an interview with, uh, you know, the, the lead from Blonde Redhead where she compared him, like, Frank Ocean as, like, someone who, like, flies too close to the sun. As, like, someone who is, like, channeling, like, really deep emotional truths on every album. And I feel like he does that. Like, I feel that, like, Sufjan puts himself, like, as a human being at the center in a way that's a lot more challenging and a lot there's like a lower floor higher ceiling than there is when I hear say like a Wilco album or an Animal Collective album or even like a Big Thief album Um, you know like Sufjan does have that capability to piss people off not because he's so middle of the road but because there is that sort of uh, you know he, he used to be in Danielson, so th- there's that. There are definitely some elements that are going to rub people the wrong way, um, and it's just so wild that like he's be that he's held a career for so long by despite being so wildly
0: uncool. You know what I mean? Yeah, I mean like the thing about the national being the national. You don't think that this album is Sufjan Stevens being Sufjan Stevens? I mean, because that was one thing I guess I liked about the Ascension and also Age of Odds. That's another record where he's right, departing right, right. from what he's best known for. And those are the records that, I don't know if I love those records, but like I've, I I respond to them more than I do when he's working in this mode on this record. Like it, I, I think that's a great way of putting it. It's Illinois the size of Carrie and Lowell. Like that's a great kind of pocket description of this record. And that's squarely in the wheelhouse of what people want from him. Except for me, I guess. But you wouldn't want to appeal to me (laughs) because I'm not in your fan base. But so you don't think that this is him just being him on this record?
1: Well, I think it is. But with when I listen to the National, it's like I I feel like Matt Berninger is like playing like a character, like he's writing like as a fictional character that exists in the National songs, and there really isn't too many new places for them to go. But like, I still get that kind of personal connection. Uh, like, I feel like I'm like mainlining whatever it is like Sufjan's going through on each album because I I, I remember around the times of like Carrie and Lowell um, when he he like gave some interview and I think he said something to the extent of like, this shit's not a game. This is my real fucking life in terms of, you know, what that album meant to him because for so long he was seen, you know, not wrongly as this kind of dorky theater or like a uh, Midwest like Carney Barker type dude, which of course he played up, but... Um, I, I just feel like with each he, – like, he, he's Sufyan doing Sufyan, but he's not necessarily playing a character where it's, like, in the same way that I get from, like, the National or, like, Interpol, for that matter, where, like, they're making, like, brown paper bag the National music or Interpol music. I think it's just certain – for lack of a better term, it's just more emo. <laughs> See, I
0: don't, I don't necessarily agree with that classification of the National. I think that is, like – I think – Berninger is as personal and as intense writing about his own life as Sufjan Stevens is. I mean, especially on these last two records, which, again, I think are flawed unless you put them together like I did and make a masterpiece. I think I'm well, not a masterpiece, but I think I made a great record out of those two records. But anyway, you know, he's writing about being a middle-aged guy and being depressed, and it's not the same stuff that he was writing about on Alligator and Boxer when he was single and going out to bars and. You know, trying to get laid and spilling drinks on his, (laughs) you know, his suit or whatever. Um, Those records that they put out this year very much hit me as like, okay, these are reflections of like someone who's like forty nine years old and maybe he's having a midlife crisis. Like it definitely has that feeling to me. But even if he was playing a character, like I wouldn't, I don't mind that in songs. I don't mind people kind of taking on a role. You know, and we're gonna talk about you two here in a minute bono playing the fly on stage during zoo tv i thought it was awesome like that's i am totally into that kind of thing
1: um i'd be into the national doing their like uh octung baby i i feel if like matt like really had like midlife crisis breaking character like you know kind of writing of like kind of going that like real deal character maybe not like a television version of himself to quote pink rabbits you know well
0: Last time I interviewed Matt Berninger, he talked about Octune Baby, like he was in an Octune yep. Baby phase, and I think he was talking about making like a side project record that was inspired by Octune Baby. That Ooh. was this was like two or three years ago, though. That may wow. have long since blown over, but um, yeah. Again, Sufian Stevens, I respect what he does. He clearly has uh, a cross generational appeal, and he was able to do that. Because, like you said, he had Illinois in the aughts, and then he had Carrie and Lowell in the 2010s. And those two albums being able to speak to different age groups and connect with like one generation and then you connect with the next, that's a very rare thing to pull off. Actually, I think The National has done that too. We keep bringing in The National yeah. here, but The Nationals <laughs> done that too. But like well, many bands don't think, do that. I
1: think Aaron Dessner's on this album, so...
0: Right, yeah, and they're definitely and Sufjan Stevens is on uh, one of the national records yeah. from this year, um, so yeah. Again, I, I I know this is good music. I know that he knows what he's doing as a as a composer and as a lyricist. Um, it remains to elude me though in terms of just connecting with me emotionally. But hats off to him. Looks like this record. Is getting a good response, though maybe not as good as you need it to be, Ian. We'll see. We'll see as say. it unfolds here. Um, let's talk about U2 at The Sphere. Uh, this was a big social media thing this week. People were flooding uh, social media platforms with videos from the first two shows of U2's residency at... Well, I keep saying The Sphere. It's actually just Sphere. You can't say the. It's it's just supposed to be sphere. Oh, I sphere. thought it was thus. Okay, no, it's, I, it's sphere. I, I, I miss rad. Well, I misread. in my in it was, my okay. in my column, I wrote about this because I went to see opening night last Friday. I I said the sphere in um with a lowercase t on the the in the same way that like I say the Ramones, even though it's technically just <laughs> Ramones, or like the Eagles are technically just Eagles. But No fucking way. Yeah, they I, are. I'm, I'm learning a lot today. Yeah, it, it, it's dumb. But at any rate, it's technically just Sphere. But for those who don't know, Sphere is this new venue in Las Vegas. It is in the shape of a bowling ball. It has a huge LED screen on the inside that is capable of photorealistic images where you could be seeing a band on stage and all of a, all of a sudden behind them, the screen turns into like a desert vista that... Seems to have natural light shining on you. It looks very much like a real desert. It's an incredible piece of technology. It also seems pretty impractical. Uh, I I'm, I mean, I'm curious uh, to see, like, who else is going to play this thing. I mean, you 2 mm-hmm. They have a 25-show residency that's lasting through the end of the year. There's also this Darren Aronofsky film that's playing in the same space. It's like a nature film, I believe. Uh mm-hmm. So that's alternating with U2 for these next uh, few months. U2 had 18 months to prepare a show for this space. And I'll just say that I think any artist that's interested in playing Sphere, you have to prepare a show, I think, specific to that venue. You can't just plug in, like, your normal digital effects. It's sort of like if you get a high-def TV and then you put, like, a dvd from like 2000 on your tv <laughs> it just looks super like great motion smoothing right well yeah it just looks super grainy and just destroy you got to get like the 4hd disc to utilize the tv um i don't know i it was a pretty crazy experience i have to say did you see any of these videos uh, that were circulating do you have any thoughts on this venue and like what it might mean for live music yeah,
1: I mean, I read your review twice all the way through and, su- and still somehow I still thought it was the sphere. But like, <laughs> I, I just maybe that's what it's like to read it on the phone. But um, I, I just can't imagine what it must be like to be in this thing. And that's through no fault of your own. I just can't like, based on my other concert experiences, I mean, I've been in an IMAX theater before and seen like nature documentaries, but I, ju- I just cannot picture what it's like to be in this thing i I just keep uh, dwelling back to like imagine laser floyd but more 3d um i'm surprised that like darren aronofsky is doing something in here because he's certainly not as uh, certainly not someone as uh you know center center of the road as you too but uh, i mean i'm hoping that cool things happen here what I'm more like what I'm more hoping for, is that like nothing happens here. That they, they just can't like book it out, or like no one shows up, and it it becomes like you know the Las Vegas version of the Whig Sphere and the Simpsons. I think that's I think that would be like a more um, profound symbol of American decline than uh, you know, like Las Vegas being what it is now, which is like the Raiders move there, like the A's are supposedly moving there. You know, I think America in general is like seeing boom cities in like Utah and Las Vegas. I mean, I just can't imagine what band that exists after nineteen ninety five could play it. Like with the exception of wait for it, our hometown heroes, Imagine Dragons. I think they'd
0: fucking kill it. Well, I think Coldplay makes sense in there. I think yeah, music for the spheres. Like they literally have that. (laughs) That's true. And, And you know, we gotta we gotta shout out our boys in Muse. I think Muse like with just dying long, to play. i don't know dying. i don't know if they're big enough to like fill like a residency there i mean it's like 18,000 uh seats in that place it's it's kind of like a weird setup because it's it it fits as many people as an arena but it's set up like a theater meaning that like all the seats are on one side and then you, you have the stage on the other and then the screen is behind the stage so unlike in like when you're in an arena like the seats are sort of like around the stage and the stage even if you're in the upper you know decks of of, of the of the arena it you're still closer I think than you would be at the sphere if you're in the back you know c- just cuz it's stacked so high up and the screen is like 360 feet or whatever up in the up in the air uh I would say too that if anyone wants to go to the sphere maybe look at 300 and 400 level seats because I was in 100 level, which means like you're closer to the band, but like you actually have to crane your neck constantly <laughs> to look at this All screen. Right. Like actually being a little bit higher up and having a little more perspective is better in terms of like looking at you know the screen that's on stage. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, I think pop stars too will work in there. I mean, I think like if Taylor Swift wanted to go in there, or Beyonce or The Weeknd. Or, uh, you know, I'm trying to think of, like, other people that would do, like, a Vegas, (laughs) I mean, like, Paul McCartney, like, have some Beatles spectacular, you know, that makes sense. Um, I mean, the thing about this is not only the technology part of it, but it's also the residency part of it. And this seems to be something that people think is going to be more of a thing moving forward, where instead of going on tour, artists are going to set up somewhere... And people are going to travel to see them. And you saw an instance of that recently with Harry Styles when he was at Madison Square Garden. He did fifteen shows there, and there was this thought that, and he did go on a tour, but like there, there was still this idea that like fans will go see him almost like a Broadway show or something, right? Um, and then you have like other artists have done this too, like on a smaller level, like the Hold Steady. Now this is how they tour essentially. Like they go to one city for a week. And they play three or four shows. And then they maybe wait three or four months. They go to a different city and play shows. And people travel to see them. Have you ever gone to a residency like that? Like, traveled? Like, do you think that that's something people are going to want to do? Well, I think the model that you're
1: talking about, like, there's obviously the sphere one, which would be, you know, U2 Coldplay level. And then there's... Stuff like uh, the Walkmen's most recent reunion tour, like they do Chicago, New York, L.A. And, uh, you know, maybe you go out to see that. Um, I think maybe that's just like what makes sense as far as touring. I don't know if I've I mean, I've probably gone to L.A. to see some version of that sort of thing. I don't um you know, I guess the closest was maybe seeing Kraftwerk 3D, which, by the way, that would be a fucking awesome thing to see in a sphere. Like, that is one of the best multimedia experiences I've had for a show. Oh, totally.
0: Yeah, that'd be amazing. Yeah, I don't,
1: yeah, I think that, you know, in some ways, like, residencies, like, happen by default for smaller bands. Like, yeah, we can't tour outside of, like, the tri-state area. But, you know, I know that was, like, a thing that, like so many things that we talked about like during twenty twenty and the pandemic about like, oh, this is how things are gonna to be totally different and now they're still kind of more or less the same. But um yeah, I, I do think that the residency in some degree makes sense, but like if you have the material for it, like I've you know, I, I did, did did it count when like Taking Back Sunday played two shows in San Diego, where one night they did like louder now, and the other night they did tell all your friends. Yeah, that's. Some- <laughs> I know some artists do that with like albums.
0: Yeah, I I don't know. I the the thing with Sphere is that it's such a big building, and I I wonder. Well, there's two things I wonder. Uh, you know, in terms of, like, how they set this up and if they made a mistake. Like, the first one is, like, the size of it. That 18,000 tickets. That's just, like, a lot of tickets to sell every night. And even for you, too. You know, they're playing, I right. think, 25 shows. And just doing the math, like, quick in my head. I mean, you're approaching, like, half a million tickets over that Seriously, run. Seriously, half- how many can David Frick really buy? You know? <laughs> That's a lot of tickets. Uh, so I wonder <laughs> if if maybe that was a mistake. The other thing is, I wonder if they screwed up by letting people bring their phones into the show. Because this was something I wrote about in my column about uh, about Sphere, which, again, you can read on Uproxx right now. You know, there were so many camera phone videos just flooding social media the first weekend of, of this residency. And I was guilty of it, too. I'm shooting photos and videos and I mean the screen is so incredible that it's like a Pavlovian response almost like you feel like I have to capture this but now you can go on YouTube and there's literally like fan edited concert films of like the opening weekend like you can watch the entire show now on YouTube Uh. and clearly that's not the same thing as seeing it in person but it is a hell of a lot cheaper than seeing it in person. <laughs> and I just wonder, like, if that's going to help in terms of the, of the free publicity that this thing has gotten so far or if it's going to hurt because the show is basically the same. I think there's, like, a middle part, an acoustic set that might change uh, from night to night. But, you know, they're playing Octune Baby and I'm guessing they're doing the same encore most nights because they have, like, this pre-prepared video presentation there's not really a lot of flexibility in terms of the production i just feel like man you kind of gave away the show already by letting people shoot this with their phones like i i wonder if that's gonna affect ticket sales on any level well,
1: I also wonder if like the sort of demographic that's going to go see you two in Las Vegas at the sphere is like going to be dissuaded. It's like, oh, now that I've seen it on YouTube, like, you know, now I don't need this anymore. I mean, we have to think about like the age range and but also like you go for the experience. Like I still don't think the, like I think the YouTube's will show like what this experience is like because you know for someone like myself like i can't wrap my head around it but when i see it it's like oh shit that maybe looks really fucking cool and i need to see it live so look i'm not like i say about the san diego padres like fucking up this year like i don't care it's not my money you know when they spend so much thing so much on like something that kind of sucks but um yeah i I, I'm, i'm interested to see where it goes but i think we can agree that like the funniest scenario is that it's like one of those like boondoggle stadiums that like countries build when they get the olympics and they just straight up don't use it ever again yeah that could happen it really
0: could happen (laughs) we'll see though i don't know i i i'm not cheering for it to fail because i do think it's a cool space uh but again when you consider the people involved you got james dolan you got Irving Azoff, yeah. Michael Rapino. I mean, it is yeah. like a it, it is definitely like a you know, like a a ghouls gallery here of music yeah. industry low lifes. So nah, we're going
1: to get JD in the straight shot. Now that I know that James Dolan's involved. Oh my god, we're going to get like the fucking blues hammer uh variety hour. All right, well, let's
0: go in a totally opposite direction here with our next <laughs> topic. Let's talk about slowcore here for a bit. Talking about the band Duster now. Depending on your age, Duster is either a short-lived and not terribly consequential band from the '90s, formed in 1996, breaks up in 2001, or if you're younger, this is one of the great bands of the 1990s. It's a fascinating, uh, you know, divide here going on, and just like the revisionism that's happened with this band and. You know, people were talking about this online again, you know, on social media, someone was circulating a screenshot of the number of monthly listeners to Duster on Spotify, which I believe is now at 4.1 million listeners.
1: Yeah, could they fill the sphere now? Well,
0: we'll see. I don't know. I mean, just to put that number in perspective, I was was going on Spotify and looking at other listener numbers uh, for 90s indie rock bands. And if you were to combine the monthly listeners for Pavement, Guided by Voices, and uh, Built a Spill, that is about half what Duster has right now. Uh, If you look at Low, perhaps what we would have thought is the most famous slowcore band of the 90s, they have about 10% the number of monthly listeners that Duster has. Just an incredible phenomenon with this group where basically they came and went in the 90s were not very much discussed at all i'm gonna be honest i never heard of duster in the 90s i never listened to them in the 90s i had no real sense that they even existed back then and you've written about this you wrote about this actually quite a few years ago right for stereo gum in 2018 you wrote a piece Mm -hmm. about how this band has been rediscovered by a younger generation that has just sent them through the roof, and it just seems like their audience continues to grow. Like in the last like five years, and like, why do you think that is? Like, why is this the band out of all these other bands I've mentioned that we think are more famous than Duster, but again, aren't listened to nearly as much as this band? Like, why do you think this band has had this rebirth with uh, you know with, with with Gen Z and all those people? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean,
1: and when we mention Spotify numbers, I'm sure like our listeners will like get up in arms as many people do. It's like that's not a real reflection of popularity or what have you. And um, I mean, I remember having an experience that this year because like when the Boy Genius album came out, I saw that like they had about as many monthly Spotify followers as like Tisa Korean, who's a rapper whose album I enjoy way more, but like four million it. I couldn't believe it. Like someone texted me. It's like, did you know Duster has more monthly listeners than Run the Jewels? Um, but like I even if they did have more than like Modest Mouse or what have you, like that's four that's like four times as many as my bloody Valentine and I know that like shoegaze is way more of a prominent and popular genre than slowcore. Um, but yeah, I, I think in two yeah in 2018 I did write a piece for Stereogum about how Duster had become a major influence on you know a lot of bands that were popping up in Philly. Like you could hear a lot of it in like Alex G or Girlpool. And one of the one of the quotes I remember is that I interviewed uh, Mark Richardson, former editor in chief at Pitchfork. Um, you know, like a guy who would know these types of things and. He described Duster, you know, they were on uh, Up Records, which is the same label that put out um, the Lonesome Crowded West. So it's in that sort of realm. And he described them as like not as big as Quasi, you know, another Up Records band, which, I mean, gives you a sense of like what their status was in its day. And even in 2018, I figured it was, I don't know, like maybe a version of what happened with American football where... You know, like they're a band that was like relatively obscure in their day. They get name checked by a few hip bands, and then what happens? They it just the perpetual motion machine of like hype, where like one person mentions it, and it just keeps building and building and building till all of a sudden they become like the most famous band of their era. Like you know, American football. Like I remember their reunion shows were way more popular than that. Like Sunny Day Real Estate or Mineral, or like bands that were much bigger in that day. Um, but I think as to why, you know, why them and not say like Low or Coding or Bedhead or like the bands that were seen as, you know, the A tier of slowcore, when you listen to Stratosphere, which is their 1998 album, it's the one that I think is their best, which by the way, funny shit, when I did the 2018 piece, it had like a three-star review in all music. Now it's got a five-star review. You always love when they do that shit on Low, but um, you know, you listen to that album and you think it's like, it sounds a little like Elliot Smith or Pinback or Sparkle Horse. And you hear it's very ahead of its time. But I think what appeals to Duster in con- in comparison to some of the maybe f- more fully formed bands is that um, you hear it and it's like, it's an album like full of really good ideas. And you can think, I can do that, but also I can do something with that. And I think we'd be remiss to not, me- like to mention like TikTok. Like they're apparently fucking enormous on TikTok, which, you know, explains why even like explains why like I wrote about in 2018, they seemed like a big deal then. And they're just they've just continued to grow. They had a real spike uh in the past year that wasn't really the result of they I mean they put out albums, you know, <laughs> very recently. They re they reunited, put out some records, but um it's just super interesting that like I don't think anyone is you know lying and saying oh yeah they were huge or like that i i heard them and i knew that you know 25 years down the road they'd be big i just think that like it, it it's just what happens when some big some in, someone who's influential like gloms onto something and then all of a sudden like people just kind of reiterate that it, it becomes like this almost zombie statistic you
0: know yeah i mean i like your point about incompleteness i think that's pretty astute I think there is an element to this band where on one hand, they're a lot catchier than a lot of the other slowcore bands. They sound more like a conventional rock band in a lot of ways, uh, while having some of the sonic signifiers of, of slowcore, uh, but they do seem like a band that maybe didn't go all the way with what they were conceiving at the time, but like younger people could listen to it and take inspiration from it and maybe elaborate on it in their own music. Alex G being a an example, Alex G, by the way, opening for the Foo Fighters on their stadium tour next Hell yeah. year. yeah. It's incredible. Um, I hope he plays
1: the Om Homer Simpson song that uh, was on TikTok. Have you seen this? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah,
0: yeah. I wonder, <laughs> it's like Dave G and Alex G together at last. Yeah. It's great. Um, you know, my reference point for this is classic rock history. You know, like I wrote a book five years ago called Twilight of the Gods which is kind of like a similar thing than what we're seeing with Duster, where like when I wrote that book, I was talking about younger generations listening to music of the 60s and 70s and and kind of like reinventing it for themselves, giving it their own meaning that's divorced from like what the baby boomers thought. And, you know, if you look at reviews of my book that people leave on Amazon, sometimes baby boomers come on and they're upset about the book because they don't <laughs> like younger generations rewriting the history of like their own lives. And, I got to say, like, I kind of know what that feels like now with this Duster situation. Not that I'm upset about it, but there is something kind of disorienting about younger generations rewriting a period of music that you live through. And Mm -hmm. you having no real power to speak against it. You know, that we are now in the situation like where Duster is part of this discourse of like the major bands Of that era, even though I think for most of us that were alive at the time, like they would never even be considered uh, an important band. And, you know, again, to kind of bring it back to the classic rock thing, I think you do see something similar, like when younger fans, for instance, talk about Bob Dylan. You know, a younger Bob Dylan fan online now is probably not going to be talking about like a Rolling Stone or Blown in the Wind, you know, these Mm -hmm. classic songs that we all associate with bob dylan because those songs have been talked about to death you know they've been stripped mined of like all of their uniqueness and specialness and freshness by a million books and documentaries and they're still great songs but if you're a younger fan you're probably going to be drawn more to like the 80s albums that dylan put out or his christian rock period or mm-hmm. other periods that were maligned at the time but now you can go back and listen to them and you can appreciate what was good about those albums and also feel like, hey, this belongs to me. Because, again, the boomers haven't totally talked these albums to death. And I wonder, like, with Duster, if there's a similar thing where if you're 20 years old and you care about 90s indie rock, yeah, you know My Bloody Valentine is a great band, or you know that... Pavement is a great band. But you are sick of hearing Gen Xers talk about these groups. It's like you've heard it so many times that you can't really get past the baggage of all of the think pieces that have been written about those bands to hear the music for what it is. So now here's another band from that era that like nobody from the Gen X cohort was writing about or talking about or caring about. And in a way, it's like, oh, this is the 90s indie rock band that can belong to me like this is Mm -hmm. almost like a new band even though they're 25 years old like i wonder if to what degree that plays into it as well because again even though this is old music it seems fresher i think in a way because it hasn't just been written about to death on pitchfork or whatever Mm -hmm. all music guide
1: yeah, I, I think that's absolutely a part of it because we talk about this so many times in the show, how like each generation tries to, you know, is somewhat of a reaction against what came before. And, you know, it's just it's just so interesting that like slow core is something that is resonating with, you know, a younger audience because it goes against everything that you're told all the time that like younger people are listening to but then again when you think about like slowcore to begin with like low was kind of protest music at the beginning against like grunge and you know loud punkish music like we're going to play as slow and quietly as possible and find our audience with it and so i mean I, i it's it's cool and it's also scary to know just how little of what we're talking about, what we obsess over right now might matter in the future. Well, yeah. Like, Cause yeah, like 10 years from now, like all the, like who the fuck knows, like what's going to be the thing that like uh, sticks and it's going to be the decision made by someone who's like 13.
0: Exactly. Right you are not in control of music history, even if, it is your history. I put that in quotes. Like, if you grew up at a certain time, you don't own that that history. I mean, another example I would throw out there is, if you were to talk to, like, the average, say, like, 58-year-old music nerd, that person <laughs> probably thinks that The Clash is a better band than Fleetwood Mac. And yet, right. if you talk to, like, a classic rock head who's 25, they probably care more about Fleetwood Mac than The Clash. Now, both bands are great, but... You know, in 1977, one band the only band that mattered. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the Clash were the only band that mattered. They were like the epitome of like cool underground music. And Fleetwood Mac was like middle of the road pop music that serious music people didn't take seriously. And that's totally flipped in like the last like 40 some years. These things happen all the time. And as you get older, you start to notice it more and you in the in the table's turn where like at some point you are the insurgent you get to rewrite history and then you get a little bit older and you realize like oh wow like now people are rewriting my history and <laughs> i have no control over it it's kind of i mean i think it's fascinating you know even if it's confounding i still think oh that's that's part of what makes this so much fun to write and talk about Yeah, what is IndieCast but just
1: like an exploration of the inexorable march of time towards death?
0: Well, on that note, let's get to our mailbag here quick. (laughs) So thank you all for writing. It's always great to hear from our listeners. Uh, You can hit us up at IndyCastmailbag at gmail.com. Ian, you want to read this week's letter? (laughs) I do. Uh, So this comes to us from David. David didn't say where he was. Please say where you're from. We like to know... Where, you, uh, yeah. where, where you're where writing from. But David, good to hear you from, from
1: you. Yeah, are you an indiecast type of town? Yay or nay? Um, so David, big fan of the podcast and of both Stephen and Ian. I don't know how you couldn't be both, but either way. Uh, I've listened to Stephen's podcast going back to Celebration Rock and Rivals. So we got a real head here. Love both of your writing. But please, 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 for the love of God, stop talking about Taylor Swift's Love Life. It's a great Smith song. Uh, otherwise, keep up the excellent work. Cheers, David. So it's not really a question. <laughs> well, no, it's
0: okay. We don't always need questions. Sometimes yeah. it's good to get feedback. Uh, David, by the way, I appreciate you buttering us up. You know, dropping several compliments before hitting us with the uh, with the complaint there uh, about Taylor Swift's love life. And again, this comes from SportsCast. SportsCast has just become the lightning rod of IndyCast. You know, we were talking last week about the NFL. And uh, Travis Kelsey, Taylor Swift dating, which by the way, you know, I don't feel like I was talking about Taylor Swift's love life. I think I was talking about Travis Kelsey's love life. So yeah. I think Travis Kelsey's love life in the context of sports cast, because Travis Kelsey is a famous athlete. I think it's totally relevant. Um, but come on, man, we don't talk that much about Taylor Swift's love life. That was like a little. Tangent that we went on in sports You know, can can we can we just have a little bit of fun here? Is it okay? Can we just occasionally delve into gossipy stuff? I think it's fun.
1: <laughs> yeah. I, I well what what I am trying to like see the bigger picture in this because um yeah, I, I also imagine David is having like one of those like, you know, those, like, things you see in factories, like, zero days without an accident type things. He's, like, doing that for, like, Maddie Healy and or Taylor <laughs> Swift. but um, Which 0 for 2 I, today, I, by the way. We're striking yeah, out know. on both of those counts. What I'm wondering, though, is that there's always been so much talk about, like, is Taylor Swift going to play the uh, Super Bowl halftime show? And, like, you know, she never has. And I'm, like, wondering, like, if she... Like, is there any price that she could give the NFL right now to the halftime show that they would turn down? Because could you just fucking imagine her doing? I'm going to assume that the Chiefs are going to make the Super Bowl or at least have a good chance. Can you imagine the spectacle of that? Like Taylor Swift playing the halftime? They would kick Usher out in a fucking second if like (laughs) Taylor Swift gave him without a fucking Show
0: Usher the door? Like, sorry, Usher. I mean, yeah, what would, no. like what would be better if they were still dating in that scenario or if like yes. but, See, I'm going to say it'd be better if they like broke up like 2 weeks before oh, the Super Bowl. that's also.
1: Yeah. You can't really lose. The breakup would be certainly interesting, but um either way, it's it's like I really think again, there's a lot of like really funny like uh you know tinfoil hat stuff some people saying that taylor swift went to the jets game so like it crowds out the seo about her jet emissions um (laughs) that's a real thing by the way like i I, I saw it yesterday but um that's hilarious i I do i just wonder like is the nfl because like they're real the nfl is totally on board with this like nope not a distraction come watch our sport you know don't pay attention to you know to a head getting turned into pudding um yeah, I I wonder like what is there any way is there any price tag that Taylor Swift could put on her halftime show this year, not twenty twenty five, this year.
0: Yeah, I mean that I, they would turn down. I, yeah, I mean I think they would uh they would do anything. They would give her, like, an NFL franchise. They just be yeah. like, you want the Carolina Panthers? They're yours. Yeah,
1: I was going to say the Panthers. That was, like, the example I was giving. It's like, yeah, they don't know what the fuck to do with this team. Give a, get, Or the Titans. I was going to you know, say, like, she might them. want
0: the Titans. It's the hometown team uh, there in Nashville. Yes. You know, look, if you write in and you tell us, please stop talking about this, it's the Streisand effect, okay? You, you will compound. You will add more discourse about what you don't want to hear into the show so yes we just spent a few minutes talking about travis kelsey's love life it may not be the end we'll see what happens maybe she'll she will be at the super bowl we'll see i can't wait to find out We've now Reached the part of our episode that we call Recommendation Corner, where Ian and I talk about something that we're into this week. Ian, why don't you go first? All right, so this is a big,
1: big, big week for classic style emo, and by classic, I mean like 2016. <laughs> um, I might save some of these ones for future weeks, but um, you know, this week we're seeing Short Fictions putting out a really cool new record that was named Out in the Week on Stereo Gum. Uh, I was like, Compared to Japan Droids, and clap your hands, say yeah, if you want an idea of what it sounds like. Uh, bigger better sons a band that i you know i enjoy their music del paxton uh what a time it is to have like top shelf uh, and tiny engines humming again because the one i want to talk about is a band called bewilder um it's an album called from the irie i guess um it's interesting because like when you look it up on google people also search for uh jason isbell's southeastern and tools undertow Mm. um sounds nothing like it um they're a band from the UK that I've, uh, you know, that I've followed for quite a few years and they're doing like an American football pinback style fall music thing, which, you know, I would say would be seasonally appropriate, except that it's the one week in uh, San Diego in October where it's like 89 degrees because of Santa Ana winds. But, um, you know, I-, I think the bigger story here is that, you know, besides it being a great album, um, it's the return of Tiny Engines, um. Man, there's been such a void in my life since uh, Tiny Engine shut down in 2019 because even if their accounting wasn't super up to speed, their A&R was just unbelievable. I mean, we're talking about a label that had like Wild Pink, Spirit of the Beehive, like Mannequin Pussy, like Illuminati hotties at the same time. Um, yeah, so this they got a, they got a bunch of great records coming out in the near future. This one, I mean, if you're looking for that sort of wistful, twinkly guitars... Uh, soft vocals um, yeah this is not necessarily porch music the first song in the sound is called Heavy Sweater that should give you an idea of what to
0: expect <laughs> Wow, love it um, I love songs that put sweater in the title and it, it sounds like sweater weather music I mean you know uh, Autumn Sweater being the defining yeah. example of that by Yola Tango um, I'm going to talk about a band that is at the beginning of their career they don't have a ton of output yet, out yet but I really like what I've heard so far they're called Prize Horse, and it's a band from Minneapolis, where I am, and they describe themselves as an alternative rock band, which I love, and it totally suits them. We're talking really heavy guitars, kind of like a dreamy shoegaze vibe to it. I'll just say that they sound like hum. It's a very, it's a good shorthand for this band. They're from the Midwest, so they're allowed to uh, sound like hum. Uh, they put out a single this week that I like a lot. It's called Your Time. And it's actually the song that got me to listen to their debut EP, which dropped last year. It's called Welder. And, look, they're not redesigning the wheel with this band, but they are doing a sound that I like a lot. And they're doing it very well. And they're from Minneapolis, so Upper Midwest. I'm going to wave the flag for you if you're a good band. So, yeah. I don't know. I don't know if you heard this band. Stereo Gum was talking about them this week. Ian... Prize Horse, I think you'd like this song if you haven't checked it out already.
1: Yeah, I've not. I've heard Welder last year. And, you know, like, it is super tough to do the hum thing nowadays, like, in a way that's original or, like, notable. Like, I mean, got so much heavy shoegaze music is, like, swagless deftones. But, yeah, I've, uh, you know, a lot of people I trust are into this band. I think that they've got a great na- Prize Horse,
0: that's a great band name. Yeah. Uh, I'm excited to hear more from them. All right. Well, horse, lay down the gauntlet here. We want to hear more music. Uh, thank you all for listening to this episode of IndieCast. We'll be back with more news and reviews and hashing out trends next week. And if you're looking for more music recommendations, sign up for the Indie Mixtape Newsletter. You can go to uprocks.com backslash indie, and I recommend five albums per week, and we'll send it directly to your email box. <laughs>